a lot of extra E's in there. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima, Japan, and today I have a special guest. We are talking with an oceanographer who has settled in a beautiful rural mountain town in Shizuoka. Shelly Clark, thank you so much for joining today. Hi. It's wonderful to, to have you here. Yeah, so uh, we should shout out to the Kominka Summit that we are both going to be talking at. Um, I was so happy to find your information there, and I think that's how I reached out originally and got in touch with you. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting to hear um, exactly how the、um, community relations panel is going to be structured. That's the part that I'm going to be speaking in. And it's not like the other talks. I think it's going to be more interactive. So、um, I'm waiting for the coordinator to tell us exactly you know, how long we present and then how much of an、um, interactive discussion we're going to have. But it should be good. Yeah, because it said you had 90 minutes.、Um, so I'm hoping you guys can have a lot of back and forth、uh, with the other, the other people in your group. I'm sure there'll、yeah, be a lot of great questions.、Yeah. I'll be there asking questions. Okay. <laughs> To me, you can't take on this whole Kominka experience without thinking about community relations. So it's really an integral part of、um, what you need to you know,、yeah. endeavor to do. Yeah, definitely.、Um, and there are tickets available for one day or three days, Stuart has told me,、uh, one of the organizers. So I'm really excited to be there. There's a lot going on. I'm getting my notes together,、uh, giving lots of advice from so many of the talks that I've done, including talks with you, Shelly, today. So I'm excited to add your point of view and some of your insights to my talk as well. Really excited、Great. to be there. Yeah. Hope I can help. And it'll be so fun to meet everyone in person.、Yeah. I've met everyone online only. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had no idea that such a large group exists, but、uh, when I got invited, I, I definitely wanted to take advantage of the chance to get you know, in touch with people more. Yeah. Now, you have done so many NHK shows, so many、uh, Japanese TV shows <laughs> about your life, your community development there in the middle of nowhere, Japan.、Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your backstory. I'm not going to show any of your childhood photos, which seems to be、okay. very popular with、That's、the Japanese.、Good. Program. <laughs>、um, but tell us a little bit about how you originally started getting interested in Japan and was it through oceanography? Yeah, absolutely.、Uh, I grew up on the East Coast in Maine and I did have this、um, Japanese fairy tale book when I was a kid and I loved that book. But that was pretty much, I have to say, until I was、uh, 21 years old. All I knew about Japan. I'd maybe eaten in a Japanese restaurant once. So, being on the East Coast, it just wasn't part of my consciousness at all. I, I felt like everybody who went overseas always went to Europe. So, it was only、um, when I moved to the West Coast because I was entering the master's program for fisheries at the University of Washington. And I got a job as a, as a summer observer in the Pollock fishery in the Bering Sea. And I was very excited. It was like, you know,、um, Kind of a Top Gun experience for a fishery scientist to go out into Alaska for the summer and be on board some foreign fishing vessel. And I was really intent on being placed on a Russian fishing vessel because this was 
Cold War era, you know, and we knew very little about Russia. Um, I just thought this would be a great experience. And they assigned me almost right away. I was one of the first people in the training program to be assigned to a Japanese vessel. And I was like, no, I don't want to be on a Japanese vessel. <laughs> and, you know, I can still remember that moment. And it just changed my life because I didn't know at the time that I would fall in love with Japan. I, I just loved the atmosphere on the boat, the teamwork of everyone working together. Everything was very safe and orderly. And I, you know, I ate Japanese food every night in the mess hall. And I just, I thought it was great. And I was totally, you know, enthralled with Japan. So after that, I went back to the US and I started studying Japanese and I fell in love with the language. And then finally saving up my money, I got to make my first tourist trip to Japan. And I went all over and I was like, okay, I don't want to get on the plane and go home because I just want to stay here. But I promised myself that I, if I was going to live in Japan, and that was a, that became a goal, that I was going to do it as a fisheries scientist because I had trained myself in fisheries. I didn't want to change fields and be an English teacher or I don't know what else I could have done. But I took me a long, long time. And I would say to people, don't ever give up because if that's your dream, you can make it happen if you just keep trying. It took me 15 years from that point to actually get to Japan. And I came on a postdoctoral fellowship in fisheries and I worked in fisheries and I'm still working in fisheries. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so all these pictures that I've been putting up, this is all during your training time uh, as a fisheries educate, like an academic? Observe, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the last one with the sh measuring the shark, that was my PhD, because I did my PhD on the shark fin trade, estimating from the number of fins that you can see in the market, how many sharks would have been killed to produce that number of fins. And, and I also did some DNA to figure out the species. A lot of people do work on that, do that kind of research now, but I was really, you know, at the forefront of that. I was living in Hong Kong at the time. So I just plucked up my courage and went down to the market and got yelled at by a lot of Chinese traders, but some of them helped me and I got this gold mine of data and I was really the first person to do that kind of work. So I got wow. kind of in the shark field for that. Well, let's, let's just uh, introduce a little bit about what you're still doing. What projects are you working on now with your oceanography? Well, since my PhD, which finished in 2003, and then I came to Japan immediately after that, I've really, predominantly worked on sharks for the last 20 years or so. But just recently, I've sort of moved on from that. And now I'm doing um, traceability and illegal fishing. So to try to mark products, identify products that are from, you know, fisheries that are operated illegally or in an unreported manner and, and try to keep them out of the marketplace. So that was a report that I did for the FAO, an organization of the UN last year, and that was published just recently. Now I'm working on estimate uh, ways of estimating illegal fishing for any country around the world. It's quite challenging because all of them will have different issues and problems, but just a general approach to how you would go about determining if you have an illegal fishing problem and then wow. determining the magnitude of it. And before we started, you said that might be your intense, overwhelming job might actually be the reason you fell in love with this middle of the mountain, very far away from the ocean 
Uh, town, <laughs> is that right? Kind of a relief, yeah. It's it's very relaxing here. It's very easy to concentrate. I can, you know, have a quiet day if I need to have that and really just focus on coming up with these ideas and, and writing. Uh, and also, I, I just love the atmosphere in the mountains. And it is kind of an antidote to uh, thinking about all the problems that I deal with in fisheries. Yeah. But another thing I should mention is one of the things I love about living in Japan is people really think that fisheries are important. I remember in Hong Kong, I was talking to someone once and they said, fisheries science, is that something to do with fish? Like, yes. But, you know, no, no Japanese person would ask that because they know how important fish is to feed yeah. the world. And it, it's in particular important for the Japanese diet. But the other thing about Japan is people have been keeping meticulous records for much longer than any other country. I think I can safely say that they have records from the Edo era era of what tuna were caught. So even in the 1950s and 60s, they were keeping records of what they were catching, where they were fishing. So that kind of record is a gold mine for people like me. Wow. Um, as someone who travels around Japan and always looking for vegan options, which are often not available, even vegetarian options are hard to find. Most things have fish in them. Yeah. Um, do you have conversations with people in your local community about maybe reducing the amount of fish or at least mass uh, far away caught and processed fish? Do you have uh, any of these difficult talks with local yeah. people? I, I'm, I know people that I work with people that refuse to eat seafood because they, they feel that there's just nothing sustainable about the fishing industry. But I'm not one of those people. I actually think that through our choices in the market, we can send a positive signal back to the fisheries. So I guess I wouldn't try to have those conversations with people other than, you know, if they're eating an endangered species or something. And generally, like eel is very popular at certain times here in Japan. So yeah, I, I want to say something, but I, to tell you the truth, I've never said anything about eel. Most of the other times I just tell them, you know, like, oh, that's that's a good choice or, or you know, that, that stock is doing very well. And they're always very interested to hear that because I don't think people in Japan get that information through the media generally. Yeah, definitely. Uh, having the the more casual conversations, I think sometimes has a better effect than going hard on the big issues right away, right? Yeah, definitely. And you're running a cafe, so by serving food, I guess I guess you're not <laughs> I don't serving serve any food, meals, actually. right? Just snacks and <laughs> it's just a like a coffee house, which is a bit of a um, insult here in a tea growing village. But no, we do serve local tea as well, but. Actually, more people order coffee because we serve espresso. Because I was living in Italy before I, very recently before I came back here and started this Sasuichi project, and so I kind of got a taste for Italian espresso. So I thought I'd introduce that to this area. So we sell a lot of coffee, and, and we also sell the local tea. Yeah, I saw some of the pictures. is just amazing with all the tea fields everywhere. Um, because, like most of Japan, the rural areas have declining populations. Are you mm -hmm. finding there's less and less people to work the tea fields as well? Yeah, definitely. And I I just wonder how long some of my neighbors can keep going because they're almost 80 and they're still out there cutting the tea. But one thing I've noticed and it's very sad is since I've moved here, I moved here in 2005, the number of fields that are cultivated are, is getting much 
lower and the, the size of the fields is getting worse. The, I don't know if it's purely a labor issue. There's also like a price factor of a lot of tea is now grown in China. It can be bought from there a lot cheaper than the cost of production here. Uh, before we move on more about your beautiful village and this amazing house uh, project that you've remodeled this old 300 year old house. I want to hear more about that. Uh, we have a great comment from Wendy. Thanks so much, Wendy, for joining. She's one of the Cominca Summit organizers. Uh, she says, what sort of fish is more sustainable fishery friendly option in Japan? Well, something you just said a minute ago, Joy, it reminded me that, um, you know, fish is not just a main course in Japan, but it's actually used as a base seasoning across a lot of products. And so that brought um, skipjack to mind, katsuo, katsuo boshi, but also katsuo in many forms is used as a flavoring. That stock is in very good shape. Actually, that's like a, a relative of tuna and um, it is very fast reproducing and the management is pretty good. So anything, um, skipjack is a good option and that that gives you you know kind of a green pass for a lot of different foods in japan most of the tuna is okay if you're going for high-end tuna i would say stay away from atlantic and pacific bluefin especially um southern bluefin tuna is a good option um, big eye and yellowfin are also in good shape in most stocks of the world but the the very high-end bluefin tuna uh, from the atlantic and pacific i i would not order that myself. Stop when, you, when you said that about katsuo, I heard a huge cheer from all the people <laughs> I've talked to in Kochi. And that's oh, like yeah. the main staple yep. of all mm -hmm. their food, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a famous place. Another famous place for skipjack is Yaisu, which is just down the road from me here. Okay, all right, well, let's talk about your village. Um, it's called Sasama, is it? Sasama, yeah. Two kanji, Sasa, which is a dwarf bamboo um, plant. And then Ma is like um, Ida or a moment in. So I like to think of it as a moment in the Sasa, which is sort of seems like, you know, relax, take a breath and enjoy your surroundings. It's so beautiful. You're right there at the foot of uh, mountains that surround you. And is it population of about 300 people? Is that right? It's so funny how people have different ideas of what the population is. Um, Sasama is really a collection of villages. So my immediate village, I would say, is only about 70 people. So that's that's called Awabara. But there are many different villages that make up the Sasama region. And when I first moved here in 2005, I was told that the population of Sasama as a whole was 2,000. But I think it's less than 1,000 now. Yeah. Now, some of the rural uh, villages I've visited, which seem to have the biggest problems with um, keeping their population, is they don't have a clinic. So as people get older, or they don't yeah. have a old folks home. So as people get older, yeah. they move more to the cities. Are you right. seeing that kind of uh, trend in your area as well? Well, the first uh, farmhouse that I bought was a family that decided they wanted to live in the city. So some of the family were older and some of them were sort of middle-aged, but they just all moved as a group. So that house became available for me, which is a good thing. A lot of the older people here are just kind of uh, hanging on. You know, they, they commute to the doctor if they have to. Um, their children are grown and gone, so they 
don't mind that the school closed about 10 years ago. But um, I really wonder how long these people are going to be able to keep driving themselves. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do is become officially or unofficially a driver for some of these people if they need to go shopping. Even the grocery store is far away shopping or they need to go to the doctors. You know, if I'm uh, retired from my job I, I'm, and still very fit enough to drive, I can drive them so they can keep living in the house that they've lived their whole life in. Now, you have remodeled uh, this beautiful estate, really. It was a collection of f 10 buildings, including mm -hmm. a shrine. Is that right? Yep. The shrine is actually not in that red <laughs> polygon you see there. The shrine is farther up the mountain. But yeah, that's otherwise correct. Yeah. And is that farmland in front of you part of the property as well? Yeah, that's behind. That's sloping up the hill behind. And I wasn't able to buy that um, because I, I've heard some other foreigners tell the same story. You know, if it's farmland and you're not a registered farmer, you're not allowed to buy it. So one of the options for me was to change the zoning of that land and then the owner would sell it to me for, you know, one yen extra. So I wanted to do that, but it would have delayed the purchase and payment to the lawyer to change the zoning was going to be about 10,000 US dollars. So I just thought, oh, it's okay. And the owner said, well, you can just use that land freely. Well, that's nice. Yeah, it's tricky when it's farmland. There's special rules that apply, I've heard, yeah. even from Wendy, who has joined. Uh, they had a similar situation. Um, yeah. You haven't, how did we first, before I get into all the amazing stories about the house, how did you find it originally? How did you even notice it? Because it oh, was, that was imagined, it, Because right? I was living in the village already, and I came to this village um, I was working in Shimizu, which is a suburb of Shizuoka city. And uh, it's a famous tuna landing port. That was why I was there. But I realized that to get to an area that I considered nice, you'd have to drive like an hour and a half in a car. So I just took a map and I drew a radius uh, uh, of an hour and a half cars drive around. And then I just started going out to all the different points on the map with my bike because I didn't have a car. So I was cycling around and I got lost and I, ended up coming through this village and I thought, okay, I got to remember this name because it's a nice name and it's a nice place. And I just really like it here. And so I went back and I told this friend of mine, and I was in my martial arts dojo and he was a real estate agent and that I, you know, wanted to buy a farmhouse in this area. That was why I was going out because I wanted to buy a farmhouse. And he's like, you're never going to be able to buy anything out there. First of all, they won't sell because, you know, all these places become vacant, but they won't sell. And, you know, they won't welcome you because you're a foreigner. I said, just look, just look. And nine months went by, but he found something in Sasama. And so I, I just jumped on it. That's so lucky. And then it was actually a house and a family that was very disliked by the community and i think this is one of the most heartwarming parts of your story to me is how you've been welcoming people in the community into this house that they were really kept out of as they were kids right definitely definitely i need to make a distinction there the first house that i bought is across the river from here it's it's very close but that was a very nice family so when i first moved there there was no problem with that at all it's this mansion that i live in now that where the family was not very 
kind to the rest of the village and they always thought that they were sort of better than everybody else. So yeah, um, I actually, the first thing I did when I bought this place is to renovate the shrine because the family had their own shrine and it was falling down. So I thought, okay, time to make some new good karma. So that was the first thing that I did. And then the first time that uh, you, uh, something called Hatsuuma is where you do the annual worshiping at a private Inari, that, that, yeah, that, that's the shrine. Um, and when the first Hatsuuma came around, I decided to make a little festival. I, there weren't many people that came, about 20, but I invited everybody in the village to come to the, the shrine ceremony and have a lunch in the house. And I was shocked to find then and in, in previous encounters that many of them have lived like a stone's throw away their entire life and they never even came up to the Gangkong or into the Gangkong and they'd never been inside. And so they were just kind of like stunned to go inside. But that's been, a yeah, as you say, a very important part of what I'm doing here is to not make it like I've become the new Lord of the manor. You know, I'm the new person who's going to be, you know, um, flaunting my wealth to everyone. I, I'm making it nice again, but I'm trying to welcome them in. So it's, it's all of our heritage. Yeah, well, it's it's such a powerful part of the story, and you've you've been collaborating and and inviting and working with a lot of the women uh, to work in the cafe with you mm -hmm. and to do different projects with you, right? Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes it's not clear who the owner of the cafe is <laughs> because, for example, I was planning. I didn't know if they would be interested in helping me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this cafe and it's going to be like a Starbucks kind of, you know, people will come up to the counter and order something and I'll behind, be behind the counter and I'll make it and then I'll call them and they'll come to the counter and pick it up. And when they leave, they'll bring their dishes back. And so the, I, it sort of came to pass that these um, local women were willing to help me. And so they're like, okay, so how are we going to do this? And I said, well, they're going to come to the counter and they're going to order and then call them back no 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 you can't do that so it became this big production of like we now give them trays and if they order a tea set there's i'm not exaggerating i think there's six things that need to be washed on that tea set so it's it's a very big production and a lot of the people we get are older people and they really do expect that i think they would be stunned if we you know called them back to the counter and expected them to bring their dishes back they just don't they're not used to that. So, okay, I want to live up to their expectations. But after some of these TV shows, we get this big wave of people. We had 67 people one day and there's only three of us. So it's very, very busy sometimes. It's good, but. Did you run out of muffins? Cause you're not serving a lot of food. It's mostly just drinks, right? Yeah, I, I need to make the muffins and it's always, we're, we're only open on Saturday. So it's always Friday night for the last two years. That's been my excitement on a Friday night is making a, making a bunch of muffins. I make as many as I feel I can, but I really, even at best, I make about 30. So a lot of times we sell out because people like them. And then I, they, like, they, I like that idea. I talked with um, Tom Colton, who went to a really remote island in Hiroshima to live, and he's doing scones in his cafe. And you have that idea that when you sell out, you sell out, you close up, you go home, you go to the mm. beach. That's not a bad thing, right? <laughs> well, we don't close up, but uh, we, they just have to have um, 
their their tea set with wagashi or their coffee with with nothing but right, that's right. okay people yeah. still come it's the remodel of the cafes uh, as with all the rooms is so beautiful uh where did you get your inspiration for the design well this um hanare this uh out outer house i guess you could call it. it used to be a guest house for the wealthy clients that would come to visit this family to buy wood because they were basically timber merchants so they would the really uh you know famous people would stay overnight in this guest house so there was an aurora in the floor there's like really really luxurious toilets which are still on display so it was nice already um but I guess I want to. I would point to two particular features. Um, you can see in some of the pictures, yeah, those, that you can see those screen doors. Those used to be for the main house. In the summer, you take those big glass doors that I have around the Engawa, the corridor, out, and the, the servants would put these um, sort of handmade screen doors in for the summer. But since I don't have any servants and it's a lot of work to take them out and put them in. Um, we weren't going to be able to use these and where the kitchen is now used to be a closet and there were you know 30 or so of these screen doors just lined up in there for you know seasonal storage and i thought okay why don't we take all the um shoji down inside so those used to be shoji there just take those down they were all dilapidated anyway and get some uh craftsmen to cut recut the screen doors so they would fit inside the cafe because they were much bigger so the first like a lot of things i say to people i have a lot of advisors in the village you know unofficially i say well okay how about we cut them down and put them in the cafe they're like are you crazy that's going to be so expensive i'm like but they're so beautiful we can't just waste them they're like oh, and there she goes again kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah it was, it was very expensive but i think it's worth it because now the light filters in and i think it's really beautiful and behind that you can see there's like frosted glass around the outer doors that's all handmade glass so i just hope that it doesn't break it's stayed like that for years so i hope it's pretty sturdy but it looks pretty fragile so it um, is absolutely gorgeous anymore. and i i love the translucence the allowance of natural light coming through those sliding yeah, doors whereas really yeah, beautiful. Yeah. beautiful and the other thing i want to point out is the wallpaper behind the counter this is sort of my design test you know i ask people if they like the wallpaper or what they think of the wallpaper <laughs> of course they want me i want them to say they like it but i've had some older women come in and say like oh totally incongruous and out of place but what i'm trying to do with this is not your typical kominka cafe you know let's throw back to 100 years ago this is supposed to be basically my approach to sasama you know a little bit modern a little bit old a little bit western a little bit japanese that's why we serve espresso and tea and we have some some modernish things like the bar stool and the the wallpaper which is to me it looks very 1960s us and that's the era where the family was at its peak and so a lot of the good stuff that was left in the house comes from that era so i had a lot of you know, materials to work with. So I just picked the wall to kind of match that 1960s vibe. And you have found so many beautiful treasures in the house. Uh, is this one of them, this old register? 
No, I have to say no. I had to. I had to buy that in an online auction. <laughs> I love it, so great, it fits, but it fits your idea of design it, perfectly, right? And we use it actually. It makes a, a little kaching sound when when we use it to take the money from the customers. Everybody thinks it's great, but I, I researched it. It's a little bit pre 1960s because in the late 50s, cash registers went electric. So if I really wanted something from the 60s, it would already be electric and it probably wouldn't work now. So I love this because it's like 1950, the last old model that we can still use now without having something be broken that we can't fix. I love it. And you don't have any messy cords. Yeah, it's not, not at electric, all. right? <laughs> yep. I love that bonus. Um, yeah, so we can just walk off with it, though. So. <laughs> yeah, it must yeah. be heavy, though. It, right? it is very heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you did the remodel, uh, you must have. Was it difficult to find workmen who could do like a traditional style of redesign or remodeling? It's getting harder. I mean, that guy in that picture is, I don't know how he learned his technique. He's really good and he's young. But most of the people that I started out using are on the verge of retirement now. So it's good that I've gotten most of it done. Uh, I really, a lot of people ask me about, you know, how did you do it? And did you, did I do it? What tools did I use? And, you know, how much did I spend and things like that? Because they're very interested in DIY. And I don't want to take anything away from that. I think that'd be really fun. If I had another life to get skilled enough to, to do that, I would probably do it. But my goal was a lot of the time that this project was just getting started, I was still overseas doing my fisheries work and earning the money to pay for the project so that was part of the reason why i didn't get involved and the other thing is i just felt like this property was so valuable and so historically important for someone like me to get in there and just try start tearing things down and you know making mistakes i didn't think that was appropriate so i felt some responsibility and i wanted to put it back the way it was i didn't have an idea of what that was because i wasn't here but i asked I, I did a lot of like talking to people before I decided on anything. And I asked neighbors and other craftsmen that I met, you know, how would this have been and how would you do it if you're going to put it back the way it was in 1960? And so a lot of that became easy because it was not my decision. It was just other people um, telling me, oh, well, it should be like this. I'm like, okay, go ahead. Yeah, you got to have a team that you trust. You get mm. especially when you're not there physically, yeah. uh, you have to have good teammates there. Uh, we had another uh, good comment from Wendy. What a great approach to renewal with the Japanese Western influences and the reuse of all that glass. Bravo. Yeah, I think so, too. Beautiful. Yeah, um, that was you my, my major approach to this whole project was like, you can't, I, I think you asked me this earlier and I, I skirted around and answered, how did I find this place? Well, I was living across the river and I always admired this property because it's set up on a bluff above the, the rest of the village and it had this gorgeous garden and I always used to walk by and kind of peer in. And the, the man who lived here was really not that friendly. He wouldn't even greet me when he saw me. So I was never feeling very welcome to come into the property, but I was always sort of sneaking around there's a there's an old road that goes past it in the front so i would always take my walk along there 
but then unfortunately he became ill and died and i when i came back from one of my overseas trips i i knew that he was no longer there he'd been gone for like a year or two and i thought oh wow okay this is my chance i'm gonna go and look in the windows and i was just blown away because i had never gotten that close before but i saw the rama you know the the transoms and i saw some of the furniture and i just thought what? and some of the windows were just left open and there were dirty dishes in the sink and there was trash everywhere and i thought okay animals are getting in here and people could steal things it's such a waste you know somebody should turn this into a restaurant or an inn and i just kept saying that over and over and then it was like oh i think that must be me then and i <laughs> thought no 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 not me <laughs> but the idea just took hold of me and I couldn't I couldn't shake it after that yeah you have so many uh beautiful antiques that you've salvaged or collected which really fit the aesthetic uh as well as the redesign you've done such a beautiful job it's really impressive oh thank you thank you very much I I just wanted to kind of feel like I was stepping back into the past. And so, and I, I don't know, because I don't know what that past looked like, but as far as I've been able to tell through researching it by talking to other people, this, this is it. And then I wanna share that with other people because I think both foreigners and Japanese have sort of lost the sense of what it was like to live in a place like this at that time. Yeah. Now, when we see the art on the walls or the um, cover of the lights, is this all things that, that you've brought in or how much of it is original? Probably half. I mean, these two paintings and the, and the lamp cover were original and the ceiling is original. Um, but you can see around the windows, this is in the the Minpaku in the guest house. Around the windows, there's this sort of mustard colored um, double pane glass. And the the last owner, the old man who was living there was living in this uh, cottage. And he put those in because he wanted to be warm. You can see him there, warm in the winter. And I thought, oh, what a shame, you know, it's just ruined the atmosphere. But it's really good for the um, guests in the in the Minpaku because then it, you can make it nice and toasty in there. There's a there's a heater and an air conditioner. You can keep it warm and cool. And yeah. So this I'm kind of one glad. of my favorites, the Engoa. Mm. And you've you've created a usable Engoa. Usually Engoas are empty and people just use them as that pocket between the outside and the inside. But having or a nice laundry. air there, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, yeah, this this picture is showing um the, the worst thing about the cottage, which is that the, all the way down at the other end of the Engauer, speaking of usable, it's it's the shower because <laughs> we didn't have any other place to put the shower. So that's not so nice. And especially Japanese people, you know, there's there's a shower at the end of the Engauer. Sometimes they're not very satisfied with that. That's the, that's the mini kitchen, which is in the other Engauer. Oh, Micro okay. kitchen, I guess you could say. But um, we just uh, started construction yesterday in another kura on the property, another storehouse on the property is gonna become a sento. So it's, it's gonna become a bathhouse. And people who stay at the Minpaku can use this private bathhouse. So I, I'm hoping that'll be a selling point. Yeah, I've heard a few people who have that idea of converting the kura 
the storehouse into mm, really? a bath or something. Really? Okay, I've never heard that, that idea. Before. And uh, yeah, people again, neighbors are like, she's doing what? <laughs> But it's going to be great because it's a really cute coda. It's got, you know, the roof tiles and they, they yesterday they, they did all the tear down. So they tore the inside out of it so you could actually see the structure. And the carpenters are like, wow, this cost a lot of money to build at the time because they have used really good wood and it's really, really sturdy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, putty, you know, that family had a lot of money. They didn't do anything with half measures. So we can just build the inside and the outside will just be perfectly fine the way it is. That's gorgeous. Um, and the Cuda is is built usually with such insulation that to have a bath in there, that makes a lot of sense. They even in winter, it should be relatively warm inside. Mm, it shouldn't be too bad, see. right? <laughs> it's got windows. So I, I mean, that's not really your typical Cuda. It's got kind of big windows. So we'll just leave those windows as they are, but put um, nice double pane glass in there. So and one of the um, ideas that it looked like you had used as well is to put a window in front of a window, um, which also helps with insulation. So you have like maybe, we did this in our house too. You have like the original window and then you put like another window in front and then you have a little space in between where maybe you could put some decorative items or something. I saw that in one of the photos. That's a yeah, cheaper okay. way than double pane glass quite often, right? But I'm I not familiar with that. I don't know. I, it sounds great, but I'm not sure that we've done that here. Oh, really? I'll have to find that that picture. I, I did see it somewhere. Yeah. Um, but this is from the outside. So let's talk about the garden. Okay. The garden yeah. is so beautiful, Shelly. It is. It always was beautiful. That's why I was poking around at the, at the marsh and sneaking around before. But then, you know, the, the man became ill, so he couldn't keep up with it. And then uh, he was in the hospital and then he died and a couple of years went by. And when I got it, it was completely overgrown. It was just a mess. Um, so, for example, the pond had to be dug out because it had like several tens of centimeters of dirt in it. And then weeds were growing in it. So we dug the pond out. Then we had to seal it again. We've sealed it twice now because it, it's still leaking a little bit. And then the um, water flow into it used to come from a little stream coming down the mountainside. But long ago, that stream had dried up. So there was no water supply. But a friend came who was a water engineer, is a water engineer, and he found this um, seep, I guess you could call it, below the, the shrine, which is a little bit far away, but it's uphill. So we put a barrel in the ground as, as a water collection, and then we ran a pipe into the pond. So now we've got this nice little water feature, and it's just natural flow, flows from gravity down from the shrine. So that's a big thing. So nice when you can find solutions like that. That's great. It must have taken a lot of like brainstorming and what can we do? What can we try? That was another one like, what is she on about? There's no water up there. <laughs> but I trusted my friend because he's like, look, see, you can see from the vegetation and look, it's a little bit damp here. If you dig down, you can collect the water. So I, I had to ask several people because they, they would just sort of humor me by listening, but then they'd be like, no. No, that's not going to work. So, uh, just go on to the next person. Hey, you know, I really want to do this. So I think maybe my track record now, having been able to do a couple things, more people are listening to me now. But at the beginning, it was kind of lonely. <laughs> 
Uh, we Enrique has joined from YouTube. It's absolutely beautiful space. You've done great design. Thank you, Enrique. Thanks. Um, yeah, gorgeous. Absolutely. Uh, can we talk a little bit about price? How sure. much? How yeah, much I've been pretty open. About it. And then yeah. the renovation. Just give us a ballpark. Yeah, I well, I've said on TV lots of times how much it cost me to buy it. So I guess that's not a secret. It cost me about a hundred thousand. US dollars, which I thought was very good price. Um, my other house, the one across the river, I bought for $70,000. And I just sort of calculated that the property with this mansion was three times as big. And I know generally the value of the house is, is nothing. So I expected to pay three times 70,000. But when I um, told the neighbor that, she's like, no, 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 less. <laughs> The neighbors were like advising me to sort of approach the owners with a lower offer, and then I approached them with a hundred thousand, and, and they accepted it. So, but That's later awesome. I found out that I should have even played harder ball and maybe gotten it for even less. Money. But, but that is something I've heard from other people like you who've moved into rural areas is being there for a while first, getting mm -hmm. to know the locals, and then buying something bigger, you get a better deal because they know you're in it, like you're yep. invested. You're not gonna yep. buy something and leave straight away, right? Mm -hmm. That I, I feel that's really true for most properties. For this one, I think the family was just so eager to get rid of it, they might have sold it to anybody, but, um, they would always have consulted the other people still living in the village. And because I was already here, it was, that was made it very easy. So as soon as, um, you know, I had said, okay, let's do it now. I, I bought it within a month or two. Wow. That's amazing. And we've shown some of the, the treasures that you found in the mm -hmm. house. Were they like in the Kuda? Cause you found a samurai sword, which almost got you arrested. Um, you found all of these beautiful things, including a koto, which has led yeah. you to learn how to play it. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, I just had a lesson today. I don't know. I don't think I'm ever going to be a great koto player, but um, I really like the sound of it. So, and it just it transports me to a, a bygone era. So I'll I'll keep playing. It's a nice um, hobby to have as you get older. I think. Oh, I do love it. But yeah, uh, lots of lots of trash and lots of treasures and lots of things in between. Um, it wasn't that they were all in the Kora. You, you know, you would think that would be where the valuable stuff would be. They were everywhere, you know, where you wouldn't expect anything but trash. You know, like you dig down and, oh, my God, look at this. <laughs> so it was just, I don't know. They say that in the heyday of this property, 30 people lived here and half of them were servants. So I don't think that any one person really managed all of the things on the property. So even they didn't know where things were probably. So to go through 10 buildings, including this one that I'm in now, which is 14 rooms, not counting hallways and, and Goa and sort of and entranceways and things. So there's more than 14 rooms is my point. And then there are cabinets everywhere. And just to pull everything out and separate the trash from the treasure. That was the first year. Wow. Now, when you bought it, you bought it from a relative of the family, right? Yep. 
did they take family photos up? Because in one of the videos I saw walking around the house with you, you had blown up some of the mm. photos that you found, which tell a bit about the family history and is such an interesting part of the video. We'll have to link that below. Yeah, it, it is fascinating there. Uh, from what I understand, the younger brother of the man who was living here at the end, uh, when he was in high school, the family bought him a Leica camera, which I guess is, I don't know much about photography, but that's kind of like a classic. And it must have been very, very expensive in Japan at that time. Um, and he took a lot of pictures and they came out in sort of what people tell me are Leica-sized prints. So they're like a couple centimeters by a couple centimeters. And he cut them out and put them in this notebook and just pasted them in this notebook. And I found this notebook in a drawer. And it's just hundreds of these black and white photos. So I uh, I didn't scan, get them all scanned, but I took the notebook to this um, Photoshop and I asked them to scan. I marked the ones that I wanted. I scanned like 200 of the best ones. And then um, once I, they were scanned, I could look at them a bit better. And then I decided to blow some of them up. And some of them are on display in the cafe and some of them are on display in the, the main house. But yeah, he was a really good photographer. He was taking, you know, kind of slices of life uh, at, at this manor house, you know, so he was taking pictures of the servants, of the pets, of, you know, like seasonal activities, harvesting things. Um, and of course the usual sort of ceremonies around the altar and like, you know, they, they weren't portrait, they weren't posed shots. They were all very um, like candid snapshots, which I think really does tell a story nicely. Still trying to figure out exactly what the story is. Yeah, and then the the photos that you have on the um, Sasaichi website, the old yeah. photos, mm -hmm. were those found in the house as well? Yeah, that's part of that set. That's amazing. And that's mm -hmm. where you have that photo of everybody kept outside of the room mm -hmm. watching the neighborhood's yeah. first TV, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's so nice because I have that up on the wall next to that room so people come in on a they come, if they come to the cafe they can have a tour of the main house and so i bring them in and then i, I say okay and look at this picture this is this picture is this room here uh, and i don't say and nobody was allowed in back then. <laughs> i think some of them are kind of like oh wow and and some of them um there are pictures of um, villagers clustered around a truck and some servants pounding mochi and some servants on a break in the kitchen and people come to the cafe and say, Oh, that's my great aunt. <laughs> so that's really fun. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? To, to have a connection to people living in the village now who remember coming to that house and, and what it was like when they were growing up there is amazing. Yeah. And you call your cafe Chaya Hotaru. So does that mean that you have lightning bugs around that area? We do. Yeah, we're kind of famous for that. We don't have a lot anymore. I, apparently, when people used to dispose of their uh, like compostable rubbish by throwing it in the river, there was more organic matter um, decaying, and that's what the fireflies like to lay their eggs on. So there's not much of that anymore, but we still have them. When NHK came to film the... Um, 
detective show in English about me. We went out walking at night and they, they filmed some fireflies, but it didn't make it into the show, unfortunately. They had they had too many pictures of you as a, a baby to show. More than, more than yes, yeah, and, and too much emphasis on the kagura because that was. Oh, there was a lot about the kagura, yeah. but I want to mention the kagura. Are you still doing it? Yeah, yeah, I did another training session at the school this week. Yeah, is so. that is this picture also a kagura or is this some yeah. something else? That's kagura. That's I'm smiling and happy and relieved because I've just finished the dance. I'm always a bit tense because I feel like people are really watching me with a, you know, magnifying glass to make sure I do it correctly. But yeah. I, I, we are famous for Kagura as well in Hiroshima and Shimane, our next prefecture. Um, but the style of Kagura looks a bit different. And you mentioned that you have a martial arts training background. Mm, have, you, yeah. have you found that there's some similarity maybe in movements or anything? Yeah, I think so. It, it feels pretty comfortable for me to do it. But um, yeah, some of the things, <laughs> you know, I, I have a bad knee. So bending my knee, like if you saw the NHK program, I'm supposed to be learning this new dance. I'm supposed to be like down low because I'm, I'm a devil. So I'm supposed to be sort of, you know, what would be the word, like kind of creeping in and you know bend your knees bend your knees Shelly. and it's like i'm doing the best i can <laughs> you know? it's not not that easy anymore yeah and so you're doing your your un work and your career um mostly at night and then you do the cafe opens <laughs> once a week and then yep. you do the uh guest house place to stay is that almost every day like how do you balance <laughs> but, all of your jobs yeah. and projects well, with um, COVID, we're not getting that many bookings. Uh, and I don't know whether that's this property, but I, from what I can tell by looking online, there's a lot of, it's still very, um, well, you could tell me, a lot, a lot, not a lot of overnight travel going on still. But yeah, you're right that anyone could book any night. But I, I tried to keep the bookings a bit limited because uh, I do need time to clean the property and do the laundry and I can't be doing that all the time. So yeah, my fisheries work goes in cycles, you know, if I have a deadline, then maybe I'll reject um, guest house bookings, but I always have to do the cafe on Saturday. So yeah, it's quite busy. And I, like you say, I, I end up working at night, which makes me work late so like I'm working till one or two and then I don't want to get up because I need to sleep until nine, let's say. That's pretty average time for me to get up. And everybody else in the village being a farmer has been up since five and they're like, it's almost noon and you haven't even had breakfast. What's wrong with you? So uh, yeah, I'm, you know, in some ways I'm really like fitting into the village, but in other ways I'm just I'm completely an outlier and probably always will be. But that's your career and being able to do teleworking is the kind of reason that you're there. Have you found like a Wi-Fi has been good enough? Has it, you know, Absolutely. the time difference is difficult, but everything else been pretty okay? Like doing telework from there? We have um, Hikari Fiber, you know high high speed internet here so my internet is absolutely great when we did the walkabout um with the wi-fi my wi-fi i don't have enough routers in the house and i have a lot of you know thick walls so my wi-fi isn't continuous through the whole property but when i'm 
in the Wi-Fi range, I have absolutely hyper-fast internet. And that is all I need. I mean, I, I use Zoom all the time for meetings. I give seminars. I give training sessions. Actually, that's quite hard. We did one in, for Costa Rica and Ecuador in was it November or December. And it was um, from 11 to 2 a.m., four nights for two weeks running. So that was a bit difficult. But, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of – I've become a night owl, so I, I get used to it. At least you're um, using the internet when nobody else in your neighborhood is, definitely, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there's too many people in, you know, elderly people in this village streaming movies late at night. <laughs> so, no, um, probably not. But yeah, um, one thing, um, you, you know, along the lines of what you were just asking, one thing that is a little bit uh, more work is getting to an international airport. But one of the things I really want to emphasize about some of these um, rural places in Japan where you can live, you're not that far off the beaten track. I mean, it takes me four hours to get to Narita, let's say, but you know, the UN could send me anywhere. You know, I just mentioned Costa Rica, Ecuador. I also did Thailand, Chile, um, Africa, you know, they could send me anywhere and I could probably get a really good flight out of Narita to wherever I need to go. It's not like I have to hop and so I can get there pretty fast. I can get back fast. And a lot of places in Japan, or a lot of people think that if you live in a rural area that you're just like hours and hours away from anything. And that, that is true for some places in Japan. But there's other places like where I live. I can be at a Shinkansen station in an hour's drive. So that's pretty awesome, I think. And that contrast between being in a super rural area with a very traditional way of life and yet able to access that modern life when I need to, or if I want to. I went to Tokyo last week for the first time in two years and it's like, okay, good, it's still there. <laughs> uh, you know, that balance is wonderful, I think. And I don't know many places in the world you can get that. And do you find you have a better work-life balance and better a mental, emotional balance by being out there in the rural area? You're a cyclist, so you can get out and do your exercise. You have a dog that you walk, mm -hmm. um, that you just have better, maybe, silence around you when Absolutely. your mind is going a million miles an hour from your job is that right yeah it's it's a perfect place for me i i realize it's not for everybody but i think there's so much to recommend about it that i just can't you know i can't enthuse about it enough it's just wonderful it's like i sort of am living my dream the only thing that i i worry about is you know the future of this village and i you know i wish i had more time and i wish i had more uh people around me that wanted to work with me because a lot of the people that i work with now are in their mid-70s so i don't know how long they're going to want to keep going well it sounded like you were doing some consulting like entrepreneur type consulting as well uh, like getting a, a viewing platform for the tea area or there were certain projects that it sounded like you had a little bit of influence to make it a bit more appealing. Is that right? I would say that um, 
maybe maybe some of us are inspiring each other but these are independent efforts and i think that's a really good thing because we're getting like a core of younger people i'm not that young but you know like not not mid 70s not yet um, we're getting a core of younger people trying to start things so that t viewing platform we've also got um down the road, the old school is now sort of a youth hostel and they have an international ceramics festival there every two years, well before COVID they did. And that was a really big thing and I'm, I'm hoping it'll come back when COVID settles down. But the other thing I wanted to mention is just in this village of 70 people, there are I think five other households that have been taken up and renovated by people from outside the community. So I really think that is not just me that thinks this is a great place. This is a great place. And if we could just get a few more people coming in, um, we could get that, you know, kind of center that's going to sustain it past the demographic wave that's going to happen when the people who are still out doing the tea farming are, are not able to be out there anymore. Yeah, that, that makes so much that must make what you're trying to do so much easier that you're not the only one that there are other entrepreneurs around uh, renovating houses um, mm -hmm. in your area. What's the ratio of people in houses versus vacant houses? Is it? Oh, wow. Um, there's some vacant houses that are just falling down. So you can't even really call them houses anymore, but let's say houses that are actively for sale or could be for sale uh, probably one-fifth of the houses in this village there's a really nice one that if i <laughs> if i were a little bit crazier i would take that one on it's beautiful it's got a tile roof and it's it's actually in really good shape so i'm, I'm hoping someone will come along and buy that one well maybe somebody watching is interested <laughs> Um, there's yeah, some, some great value houses that you can buy and remodel, right? Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the big selling points here is that we are kind of close to a minor city, Chizuoka. And the other thing is, you know, because I'm here, people are very open to different kinds of people moving in. I think I was the first one to come into this village, but then these other Japanese people came and took these other houses. And I think it was because, you know, I was maybe not totally because of me, but I was already here. So I had established that this could work and, and I'm much stranger than they are, you know? So if there's gonna be any scrutiny on a new resident, it's gonna be on me, it's not gonna be on them. So I think that's, you know, if people are concerned about being the, the odd one out, that's not gonna happen here. And, and for me and any other yeah. foreigners who are thinking of coming into your neighborhood, I think it takes pressure off us because we know that Shelly's going to be the one that NHK goes to all the time. So we can just relax and just be normal people, right? Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I think there's a lot of like not uh, a psyche in Japan about not standing out and just kind of keeping below the radar. So, yeah. No, you've done so many shows it's amazing Good yeah for too you. many i think i think i'm gonna decline from now on although you know i have a bucket list and uh one of the things on my bucket list is to be on cycle around japan for nhk world i love that show and i heard that they're gonna call me so hopefully <laughs>
<laughs> That's awesome. I I know Bobby Judo has been on that show for mm -hmm. the Kyushu leg yeah, and yeah. around Hiroshima. So I'll I'll tell him to say your name <laughs> to the yeah. people in power. Make sure that you get on there. But wouldn't it be great to have a woman on that program? Because it's mostly men, right? Exactly. I think I'm gonna, you know, if they call me and ask me, I'm just gonna go into you know hyper training mode because I <laughs> have to be, I would be the first woman on the show as far as I know. And then you know, like I have to be good enough to be on the show. So well, yeah. you're getting lots of training. You're living in the mountains, right? Mm, it's all up yeah. there. I'm just, I'm a, you know, Samogadi. I don't know if you know that word. Like, I don't like to be cold. So um, now that it's warm, just this past week, it's gotten warm enough and I've gotten out there again. But yeah, I, I watched the Bob, one of the Bobby Judo cycle around Japan episodes and he really looked like he was in pain. I think they work you pretty hard. Um, yeah. Well, I think you could handle it. I, I nominate you. I recommend <laughs> that NHK reach out right now. Um, thank you so much, Shelly. That was a great discussion. And I really want to have you back and just talk about your wheelhouse. Just talk okay. about oceanography, fisheries, sustainable fisheries. It's such an important issue. And you're an expert. And I would love to talk to you again. So please come back. Okay. Thank you, Joy. Sorry about we have, uh, you know, our little village chime at six o'clock. So we're right on schedule here. <laughs> a yeah, little background right. music from the village to close this That's out. Perfectly fine. That's part of the village charm. I love it. What, yeah. what does it mean if it's chiming now? It's time to come in and eat your dinner. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And seven o'clock is get up or, you know, well, you've been up for two hours now. Maybe take a break. <laughs> Shelly, you have two more hours to sleep before people come after you. <laughs> you don't need a clock. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Great to talk to you, Joanne. I look forward to yeah. meeting you. Oh, it'd be wonderful to meet you in person. Yeah, yeah. The Kalinka Summit. Looking forward to it. Yep. See Thanks. you there. Thanks so much, Shelly. Thanks, everyone, for joining. See you next time. I drop the armor, now I'm bored.